Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Today we are joined by Marate Connolly Dickinson, comedian of our dreams and new mom. Is it Connolly <laughs> Dickinson or Dickinson Connolly? Or either or both? You know, technically, I never changed my name at all. So it's just still Marae Dickinson. <laughs> it was such a pain in the ass. I just did it last month, finally. Really? After much workshopping where people were like, do you really legally want to change your name to Colonel Sanders? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I think I do. It'll make my grandpa happy to hang on to the Connell. Yes. Yeah. Um, I remember, too, like when you guys first got married. I don't know if it was Sean who came up with it or someone who like sent you something and it was like Sean and Marie Dickolly. Yeah, Dickolly. I was saying to Sean we could change our last name to Dickolly because Dickinson Connolly, that's six syllables. It's a lot. Yeah, that's too many. So we just need to combine, but Sean is so attached to his last name. He loves being called Sean Connolly. That's like how I am. I miss the I miss the hard K sound. Like I had a couple people bring me on stage and say Maraid Connolly. And I was like, the end, it just doesn't satisfy me. Yeah. The Dickinson. Yeah, it's it's strong. Yeah. I feel that way about like being Molly O'Connor though, the way that like Sean feels, I think. There's a cadence to it that I really like. Okay. And that's also like for me, it's it's my grandfather's last name, but it's my mom's last name. Like, it's not my dad's, and so that's part of it, where I'm like, yeah. I'm an O'Connor. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so you have your mom's maiden name. Yes. My right? mom has never been married, which is cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. But anyways. Wait, did you say that you performed as a Connolly, though? So were you pregnant while you were performing? <sighs> no. Sadly, I literally got pregnant at the beginning of the pandemic. And I just did my first live show again, um, like two or three weeks ago. And so I missed my Ali Wong moment. I didn't get to go on stage. (laughs) No. Or like when Jenny Pasillo did um, karaoke too, and she was like nine months pregnant. I have to get pregnant again. (laughs) (laughs) Just Yeah, I was really looking forward to it. I love... Ali Wong's special. She's done two specials now when she's pregnant. So pregnant I, too. <laughs> not just like not just like a little pregnant. There's only one other comedian I know or that I I saw her on late night and she like walked on and she was like obviously 9 months pregnant and she her first joke was I don't know if I'm ready for kids. <laughs> That's a great joke. Yeah. Um, uh, where was your first live show in a year? Was it in person? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, in Boston. That's what you meant by live, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've done a couple of Zoom shows. Um, yeah, probably like 10 or so. But yeah, my first like real live stand-up show. Because I don't know, stand-up doesn't really work on Zoom. So I, I've done like storytelling shows or like um, shows where I'm being interviewed or something. But this is like my first time like actually doing my like 10-minute routine in front of a bunch of people. It was so nerve wracking. 10 minutes is a long time. (laughs) Yeah. It was at the, uh, the white bull tavern. Where's that? uh, 
it's in Boston. It's like, it's in the area that's super touristy, like where like they say all the first bars are. Oh yeah, yeah, I know exactly where that is. But we uh, we went to our first live comedy show. We're both vaccinated now. So we're like, all right, we're going out to see Jimmy Cash. Yes. And your husband was the opener or the, he was like the the host. He was the MC yeah. of the, the MC. Yes. Uh, he was very funny. But the jokes that I thought were funny, we were right in the front. And I kept like laughing and I was like, that was brilliant. And he turned and he's just like, Sarah, but it might have been brilliant, but it wasn't a good joke. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> They were new jokes. I'm too supportive. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One thing I will say that I like about, so Woot and Annie, a lot of our Worcester comedy has been on Twitch lately versus Mm -hmm. Zoom, where so instead of like the audience kind of being there and sort of like laughing, the thing that I do think is fun about Twitch, and I think from one end it's hard because you don't get the immediate reaction, but like the being able to sort of have the chat box Yes. She's like writing mean things to Doug at the behest of, of Brian and Sean. <laughs> but it is, it's fun. And I think um, our friend RB, like he was the one who was like, I forgot what it, how, fu- how much fun it was to be like in a chat room <laughs> situation. So you can be a part of the show without heckling. Right. Not that I would heckle any of you. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. I, I, though, some people I know think that you can talk during someone's show as long as you're being supportive. Like, um, I have seen people try to be super supportive of, like, if I'm bombing and they're like, you're doing a great job. And I'm like, that's, that's worse, so right? <laughs> like, I feel like that's it's like, worse, right? <laughs> yeah. Before even watching it, I was like, oh, hysteria. This is a great entry point for us to talk to, or hysterical. Hysterical, yeah. Sorry. Um, the new documentary that was on Hulu, and I was like, this is a great entry point because we've been wanting to talk to Maraid. Of course, then I watched it, and it, it was all right, right? It, like, kind of has these feminist leanings, and there were things about the comedy world that I didn't know, but I'm sure you were well aware of. And then this story came out that was like, um, critics call this, Highly marketable feminism. Since its release, it has been criticized for including Jeff Ross, who was recently outed as a child predator. And I was like, oh, no. What did I have us watch? (laughs) Do you know who Jeff Ross is? You know who Jeff Ross is. He's like the The uh, roast guy. I know him just from looking him up on the internet recently. But I was like. Oh, no. He was, like, in a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old, and they included him on this feminist documentary. Sarah, so I apologize. You obviously didn't watch Comedy Central every day for 12 years, and it shows. I remember Lisa Lampanelli <laughs> from all the roasts. Yeah. She was the one that stood out. So I guess that's a jumping-off point. But were there any um, female comedians who have been, like, super in the media or on Comedy Central or Netflix specials and everything in the last few years who spoke to you where you're like, that's where I want to go? Definitely Ali Wong was one of my absolute favorites. I Yeah, I listened to some bits that she did on that documentary that I had already seen, and I laughed out loud. I was <laughs> We were just like, oh, she is so good. And especially now, because I loved her before I had a baby. And now that I've had a baby, I'm like, yes, thank you. <laughs> I love her material so much. I am a big Chelsea Peretti fan, too. And I oh. think she's another one who, like, she, but her, obviously, her having a baby was, like, less 
it was not as much in the open, but like she does and she hasn't been really like present as far as like her voice as much lately, but like she's been doing like she does she pops off some tweets sometimes like about being a mom that are very, very funny too. Where it's just such a perfect alignment of like her personality, which is so like, I don't care. And then it's like my baby. When I first when her special first came out onto Netflix, I watched it like three times. I, mean, yeah. I haven't seen her stuff lately, but now I do follow her on Instagram and um <laughs> She does a really funny thing where she posts pictures of her food and she captions it. This is disgusting. Boop, there, I did it for you. Because apparently she gets a lot of hate on Instagram. I love it. Well, one thing, um, she had a podcast that I used to listen to a lot. And she used to, one of the big things on her podcast, she would take phone calls. Like that was what it was, where she would just like, she would either take live calls or she would have people like leave her messages and just be like, you know, she would reply to them. Um, but she had a lot of hot takes about food. <laughs> and so she people would call in and be like, and just literally have a list of foods that she would be like, good, not good. And she's like a notorious soup hater, which I think is really, really funny. Um, are there any podcasts, like comedy podcasts that you really like? Um, I like Comedy Bang Bang. I don't listen to it all the time, but... Um, Classic. Yeah. Oh, and I really like, I just started listening to this one called... Carl calls his cousin. <laughs> um, Tell us more. <laughs> he's, a, he's a writer in LA and he, uh, he just recently found out that for several years he's been living in the same city as his cousin and they've actually been doing improv in the same stages and uh, they're, this is just them getting to know each other and they're just so funny. So they knew each other and then found out that they were cousins? For new they actually didn't know each other. They like didn't realize they had been in the same spaces. At oh, the same okay. Time. And then they found out. Oh, I have a cousin. Oh, how do I? How have I never met him before? And uh, he writes for. Oh, oh my God, Keenan's new show. Keenan. It's called Keenan. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's called Keenan. My favorite comedy podcast is called Good One, and they just examine how a joke came to be. And the episode I was listening to today is about this guy. Um, his name is James Acaster. <gasps> Wait, is it about when he was on the Bake Off? He was on Great British Bake Stop. Off. It's and the he funniest was like, thing I've ever seen. Not in a good place. And he kind of goes back and reflects on it. But they, the host asked the questions like, when did you know this was going to be a joke and not just like a horrible day in your life? <laughs> I really like that. This so he's a he's British. He has a special on Netflix too, James Acaster. But he appeared on. They do a bunch of like charity breakoffs, and just like the best, the probably what I'm assuming one of the lines that they talked about is like he takes the thing that he's serving them out, and he's like, "I put it together and had a breakdown. Bon appetit." <laughs> And they're all just like, okay. And then later on in the show, he like serves them like up literally up just a pile of the ingredients. <laughs> but he like, tells the backstory it. and he was legitimately having a break, like a mental <laughs> breakdown when he was filming the show. But I don't know. Is there anything for you that has been a horrible experience, but turned into a really great joke? Oh, gosh. Um, I wanted to say giving birth but actually I had a pretty good experience giving birth was it short and sweet yes it was <laughs> that's what I'm dreaming of <laughs> someday so I don't I 
a funny thing was that being in the room where I was giving birth, like I could still hear what was happening through the other walls, like all around me. It was like, I was hearing like the sound of a woman screaming, a baby crying, and then a room full of people cheering. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my God, it's about to happen to me. Oh God. Like all at once. <laughs> Yeah, it was, oh, it was so, it was so real, but. Can I ask, like, who was in the room? It was just, just my husband, Sean. I mean, no one else could be there because of COVID. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a different experience, but yeah, I pushed for 30 minutes, less than 30 minutes, and my baby came out. Oh, what? Yeah, all the nurses were like, yeah, you hear that lady on the other side of the wall? She's been pushing for three hours and no baby yet. (laughs) Did it get competitive? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I guess I was like very I'm not an athlete, but I imagine this is what an athlete feels like. Like they were coaching me through it. Um they were like hold the back of your legs, um don't hold your breath when you're breathing. Like allow your your breath to move out of your teeth because then you might be like holding your tension in your neck rather than actually like pushing where you're supposed to be pushing. So interesting. Um, I feel like that's stuff that can be like translated to real life. You might be holding tension in other like parts of your body or of your life. And you think that that's helping on whatever you're stressed about, but it's really not. Yeah. It definitely applies. I feel now I'm like, I know the listeners, our viewers can't see, but I just started like trying to like unhook my jaw, like (laughs) in this room. Where's all my stress? Um, I do think that there are things about pregnancy that like, or, I mean, I have never been pregnant, but like, (laughs) is there anything that you have found outside of just that, like the experience of giving birth, like that you would like to bring into? Or the nine months of like like, sobriety and hopefully restfulness that came along with building a human inside of you. That you'd like to bring into your life now? Yeah, I don't know. I, but one thing that, has really resonated with me is like perspective because being pregnant, um, like it started off, like I didn't feel any different at all, but then gradually it was like, like being shoved into like a smaller and smaller room. And then like, I couldn't even move. Like I couldn't, like it started off like, Oh, you can't drink. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like that'll be a tough habit to break. And then I was like, you can't, climb on ladders and then I was like eventually I couldn't drive a car because my stomach was so big the weight of my stomach resting on my thighs would put my legs to sleep oh my goodness like I can only go three miles or less yeah eventually I was like Sean I don't think I should drive and then I and then I was I thought that was the right call but then I was like I hate this so much I hate like I can't do anything for myself yeah I wanted to like hang all these plants on my walls I couldn't get on a ladder Um, but the, like how amazing I felt afterwards was like euphoric, like just being able to like walk around, like I was 173 pounds before I gave birth and now I'm like 128. So like, Oh my God, you're so tiny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like physically, like feeling that weight off of me, I felt like a whole new person. And I was like, I'm going to do so many things. Like dancing and running and I haven't done those things but I have a new appreciation for just being able to like roll around and like it's yeah yeah, it's something that I definitely want to keep with me were you ever able to like eat off of (laughs) your belly belly? yeah (laughs) 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, I, like my, that's my dream. I always think of Phoebe. <laughs> There's like in, in Friends when Phoebe was pregnant with those triplets and she's just like walking around like with like crudite on her on like a little plate on her belly. <laughs> like that's the life. It was weird not being able to see underneath my belly though. That, <laughs> oh my that God. I never jarring. even thought of that. Yeah. What's going on down there, you know? What? I Tell me because I don't know. <laughs> see, these are the questions. you. I feel like you could make an entire act out of this i have not been writing that much uh, i kind of got afraid to write jokes so you even though i thought of so many i thought of so many jokes but I, I didn't like i purposely didn't write them down because i was like oh i'm so behind on stand-up like behind i don't know behind what but um i did tell a couple of baby jokes i, I didn't get as into it because you don't you don't know who will be able to relate yeah, that's fair. But also, I don't know. I feel like one thing about comedy is like as long as you're funny enough, right? Yeah, you're it's right. not necessarily about someone having to relate to you. Don't think about them. Think about <laughs> you being as funny as you can, Marine. Uh, I also resonates. think that the idea of childbearing, it should be a universal truth where like, we saw Jimmy Cash the other day. I thought he was so funny because I'm a teacher. But there were a lot of people in that room that thought he was so funny because they've just been students in schools for 12 years, right? So they went to Worcester Public Schools. They got it. I don't know. I think the same thing about motherhood, right? We all understand on some level. Yeah, you're right. Not, like, not everyone is a janitor, but obviously, like, his jokes connect with a lot of people. Um, yeah, they shouldn't just be funny, like if you have lived that exact experience. So I'm trying to, yeah, work on some jokes, but also I'm like, how many people know that um, after giving birth, um, your butthole's different? It just is. Yeah. I've only learned There's these so things. many things yeah. happening that I'm like finally. a lot of people, <laughs> mostly men, either don't know about or don't care to know about or are so taken aback by in a way that I'm like, yeah, this is what a body is. Like what And how do you think you got here, sir? Yeah. Mm. (laughs) But the other night when we did go to that show, there was only one female comedian on the docket. And it, it reminded me of this too when you said like positive heckling or whatever. Molly and I, one of her jokes resonated with us so much that we turned to each other and we're like, oh my God, yeah. And my husband gave me dagger <laughs> eyes. He's like, you two stop talking. And I was like, sorry, it like we really were. struck a chord. It yeah. was a great joke. We were trying to, right, exactly. Like we were trying to be like, yeah, we were just like, oh, Yes, yes. And um, I thought that was so funny. But the one thing I really took away from the documentary hysterical was that they wouldn't put two women on the same lineup or you at the very most like could not be in a row. And that would be suicide to a show. And I thought that was crazy, too. So can you tell us about that? Just how to get on a what do you call it? Like a bill? I don't even know. A lineup. So I definitely... Yeah, so I I actually have produced a comedy show where I had all women and I didn't um, promote it as like female comedy night. It just was like, this is what we're doing. It's incidental to just like what is going on. Yeah, so one of the biggest problems I had with Hysterical was that I felt like the weird fixation on like, oh, you're a woman and you do comedy? Wow, we need to learn more about this subject. I felt like the the weird fascination was revealing that like they they themselves kind of feel like women are not at home in comedy. 
So yeah, that, that was my main problem with it. Also, it was very melodramatic. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, I thought they were trying to like dig sad answers out of people. And oh, like um, they asked Eliza Schlesinger, they asked her about like, where do you think the idea came from that women aren't funny? And she, like, they actually showed the part of her being like, I didn't think we were going to talk about that. I didn't think you were going to ask me that question. And they were like, no, we're not, we're not trying to talk about why women aren't funny. We're trying to talk about where the idea came from, which I still feel like is just so, such a hack concept. Well, they played all this old footage of Jerry Lewis, who's like the Rat Pack comedian or whatever. Yeah. And they, all right. The quote, I'm sorry. He says, a woman doing comedy doesn't offend me, but sets me back a bit. I, as a viewer, have trouble with it. I think of her as a as a producing machine that brings babies into the world. And I was like, what? Oh, my Lord. So I guess we can blame Jerry Lewis for this. Yeah, well, he was highly respected, I think, in the community. And they were like, well, if he says women can't be funny, well, then that's okay. And these ladies are of a different generation featured in the documentary, I think, where they were far enough removed where they're like, oh, no, we've overcome that. And so the producers didn't get the reaction they wanted. I just can't even imagine, though, like sitting down with like Lucille Ball and being like, you're not are funny. you funny? <laughs> she was the funniest person in America for like six years. <laughs> like, what are you on about? And that's that is like. That's Jerry Lewis's generation, right? And so I wonder, too, like, did he see her and was just like, no, when oh, – I I mean, I, I'm, like, obsessed with Lucy, to be clear. But, like, still, I just want to be like, bro, what even? That's all I would say. Yeah. I feel like this documentary is, like, a couple years too late. Mm-hmm. Like, it would have been super relevant maybe, like, five or ten years ago. Yeah. But I really feel like, like – yeah, like there's so much more of a conscious effort being made to include a diverse lineup. And I feel like even when I started back in like 2016, like I was encouraged and helped and people wanted to see me succeed. They wanted to let me know like where I should be going and what I should be doing to help myself. Like not necessarily like they wanted to just hand me things, but um yeah, I was recently reminiscing about like when I started comedy and it was still intimidating because of my background. I was doing college improv in Worcester and I wasn't used to like being like on the same stage with a bunch of strange men and like being out there by myself. But I still feel like the atmosphere was much more accepting and even helpful. So this, yeah, this documentary was like trying to capture a mood that happened a long time ago. Can I ask, how did you decide, like, so you mentioned that you did like improv in college and improv is obviously very different from stand-up. How did you decide to like move to stand-up or like what brought you that way? Um, I saw a free improv show in Houston and I thought it was so bad that I was like, I want my time back. (laughs) And it's so much improv is so much about relationships with the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, my relationships with my improv team in college were like really, really important to me. Some of them are still my best friends to this day, 
but I thought it, it would take me so much time to recreate that. And I really just want to start doing comedy. I don't want to wait around for the right person. Like it's like a marriage. I don't want to date around and maybe waste a couple months or years looking for the right people to collaborate with. Right. So that's why I just decided it would be easier if I started writing my own comedy. I think with those collaborations too, a lot of the times it's like a lightning strike where like, it's just total luck, right? Like Elaine May and Mike Nichols, I always think of like, they just like found each other and it became like a phenomenon, but it's hard to find one person even, never mind like a group of people that you are just like, where it really works for a long yeah. period of time too. I yeah. want to know best show, worst show. Like, what was the show where you wish you could take it back? But maybe you learned things, and it was a terrible experience. And then what was a show where you were just on fire, and the crowd understood you? You mean um, stand-up or improv? Stand-up. Yeah, I've had a lot of good shows. So before the um, before the pandemic, I was producing a show um, called The Mendoza Line at the Dugout. It's um, It's near one of... Boston's as many colleges and universities, not Boston College, because I used to live there. They're in Brighton. It was a really good show. I actually, um, I got the opportunity because it's all, it's like a, it was like a group of four rotating producers for the show. And I think one or two of them had dropped out and so they needed more help. And so they approached me and Sean about helping them produce the show. And I was so happy about that opportunity because I'd always loved it and I wanted to be booked there more and I was like well there I go yeah I'm not booked more if I'm helping produce the show do you get to like host yeah cool very cool and you can um, set the lineup and stuff yeah yeah and like do everything also there was some there was some stupid thing like it was it was a really good show so there was it would be hard for to talk me out of doing it but the other producers were like, okay, at the beginning of every show, we need to take this heavy couch outside and put it in the alleyway. And at the end of every show, we need to carry it back inside and along with these like 70 chairs. And I'm sorry, but the owner of the bar just insists that like we need this huge heavy couch and we need like a couple other love seats in this room. Even though every time I've ever been to that bar, no one sits on them. But we had to do it because that's just, those were just the part of it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's part of the funny, like, stupid steps you, you don't think about when you are dreaming about doing comedy. And it must feel like a different level of power, though, to be producing a show, right? And I think that's something, like, at all levels, especially, like, in entertainment, where people are working towards just, like, not just being, like, oh, there are more women actors or more women, whatever. It's, like, but placing diverse people diverse people, you know, like (laughs) non-white men essentially in the places where there are, where there is actual power. Right. And so producing a show is an entirely different level of that, not just being on the ticket. Yeah. When I started, I thought that it was a good thing to learn all of these steps, like all these non-comedy aspects of getting booked. Like I was like, sure, I'll, I was thinking about moving to New York City and I was like, yeah, I'll start a show and then I can just trade spots with other comedians that also have shows and then I'll get so much more stage time. And thinking back recently, um, I was like, I wish I had never learned those things because I wish I could still just like do comedy for the sake of comedy and just think about writing and thinking about making the people in the room laugh, like whoever's there and only those people 
rather than all these like tips and tricks, like, oh, this one guy, he gets headlining spots because, um, oh, he, he brought some YouTube stars to headline for, or to, um, to open the show for him. And they brought all his fans and then those fans started following him online. And yeah, I just wish I didn't, I wish these things were not in my head. Right. Where you, you're so focused on like how many people show up and who those people are and what they're going to do to, you know, publicize or whatever. Right. Yeah, exposure, online engagement, um, how well your social media posts do. I always try to avoid the comments. And that's one thing. My husband, I would call him my first reader. I do a very different <laughs> kind of writing than you do, but I always have him read my stuff typically before I send it to my editor and he just says, I love this. Don't read the comments. And I think it's a great piece of advice. But um, do you have a first reader? Like, do you perform for a friend from improv or your husband before you go out and try new material? I try out everything on my husband, but I think he, so he says that I'm really hard on myself, but I think that he's like too easy on me. Um, But yeah, I, I typically run things by him, but I also know that running things by someone is not very reliable. Right. Cause it's by that person. Right. It's, it's totally different in the context of like being on stage and telling it to strangers, like telling something funny to a friend. Without that context of just like the whole entire background of your relationship. Right. Funnier in conversation than they are on stage. I will say that there was at least one time where like you were on a, the bill, you and a bunch of dudes. And I remember being like, Right is so much funnier than all these men. <laughs> it's not just Sean. But do you see yourself continuing on this path as like an organizer producing shows? Um, I think for the right show, I like doing it just because, just for the opportunity. I think that's why a lot of people do it. A lot of people produce shows because it gives them the opportunity to be on that show a lot more. Um But ultimately, um, I think I like the writing more than I like the organization. I know some people that feel the opposite, that they just like, they want to be a part of the show without having to go on stage and do it themselves. I don't really see that for myself, but I do. I also think about um, how a lot of my friends, like as an adult, a lot of the friends I've made have been through comedy and what would happen to those relationships if I wasn't a comedian anymore like if I wasn't actively getting on stage or like going to open mics and working on material, if I just showed up, like, would it be weird? Would we still be friends? I really don't know. Is there a specific um, way that you like work on material? Like I know like Larry David, there was a point in my life where I like started watching Curb Enthusiasm. I was like, I'm going to start carrying out a little notepad and take notes (laughs) on things that are funny. Like, do you do anything like that? Is there, or do you just like, do you kind of keep things in mind and then kind of sit with it? How do you how do you approach like writing material as a stand-up comedian? So I definitely just I don't like to like sit down and force myself to write a new joke. I definitely just like to note them as they pop into my head. Um and so for that reason I have a bunch of notes scattered everywhere and like notebooks and like on my phone and various places of things that I think are funny. Um one time I was like in jury duty and I <laughs> got some ideas for jokes so I have some like loose like paper that I I smuggled home I think you're not supposed to take evidence home from a courtroom but 
Secret is safe with us. Yeah. I don't think. Well, was it evidence? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, they don't want you taking anything home. They were like, okay, like let me let me take your notebooks back. And I was like, right. Yeah. But it wasn't like evidence that was like pertinent to the trial, right? They mean evidence of like things that you have. It was a black glove that she found <laughs> in, in a white bronco isotoner. <laughs> Well, I took notes on evidence, and I also took notes uh-huh. on um, people saying ridiculous shit. <laughs> you had to do it. Room. It had to be done. It had to be done, yeah. I just want to say I don't trust my fate being uh, foisted upon a jury after my experience. I was in, I was in a trial for three weeks. And, Whoa. Uh, when was this? What kind of trial? It was a medical malpractice case in the beginning of 2020 in January. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and some... So, okay, a man died, and he was also happened to be overweight, and uh, a woman in the deliberation room, she was like, his doctor told him to lose weight, and he didn't lose weight. If you can't love yourself, how can you expect other people to love you? And I was like, <gasps> what? <laughs> this man is dead. <laughs> she, that woman definitely has a live love laugh live laugh sign love, sign. in her kitchen <laughs> that woman is a character from the progressive commercials where the guy's like i teach people not to become their parents <laughs> just like makes them throw stuff away that's wild do you have any recordings of um comedy sets uh yeah i do oh, i actually for my when i recently went back to doing live shows i so i have all of these recordings of my sets and it's like my like pile of new yorker magazines that i never read but I say I will one day. And I finally listened to my recordings and I had a joke that I've told like a hundred times. And I was like anxiously waiting to hear what the end of the joke would be. And then I laughed to myself at my own joke that I've told a thousand times. I think that's awesome. Please send it to us so we can include it. Yeah, because I was going to be like, uh, do you want to tell us a joke? But I feel like (laughs) that's very forced. So maybe, (laughs) yeah, if you you have have a performance. (laughs) Um, is there anything that you haven't gotten a chance to talk about that's like coming up or, um, just about motherhood in general that you would definitely want our listeners to know? Even if your butthole changes, (laughs) your heart is true. And even if you don't love yourself, you are deserving of a physician's care. Woo! Yes. That's juror number 12 right there. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you, Marie. And I can't wait to see you in the real world. I it's know. It's like always a joy when you guys walk into a place. I'm like, okay, going to be a fun night. I can't wait to meet that baby. I know. Uh, I can't wait to sh- have other people hold my baby and to roller skate. Yes. yes. I was actually going to invite you to roller skating when you were like, I can run and dance, but I haven't. And I was going to be like, are you going to roller skate with us? Please do. Yeah. I bought my roller skates when I was like eight months pregnant. And then I was yes. like, I guess I'll get to use them someday. Mm-hmm. We all summer, we're going to be rolling. Yeah. And we've been learning a lot about Worcester's roller skate history. So it's pretty cool. It's all in. Very exciting. Well, thank you. I have been Sarah. I've been Molly. And this is Paul.